Good morning, Grace. Walt, thank you for that song, and thank you for a worship set that um, really, I think, a, a subtext of it is the welcome that we have in Christ and the lengths that God has gone to to prepare a place for us to flourish and to, in turn, serve others my name is Eric Twisselman. I'm one of the elders here at Grace and uh, want to welcome you here if you're new and uh, worshiping with us this morning. We are in the book of 1 Peter, as Walt said, and we're in the fourth chapter now. Last week we started with the first 10 verses and this morning we're going to go through verses four, uh, excuse me, chapter four, verses seven through 11. Um, and if we could, could we, could we stand in honor of God and his word as we, we read it together? I'll be reading from the ESV, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please allow your word to land on soft hearts this morning. Prepare us to hear your word afresh. Holy Spirit, work in us. Speak through your word. Show us the places in our own life where we need to obey these exhortations, Lord. Help us to serve one another with gladness, practice hospitality, to speak to one another as if you were speaking through us. Help us all to do it to the glory of Christ. We pray these things in his name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite musicals, in fact, one of my favorite books of all time, is Les Miserables. Any Les Mis fans out there? Okay, yeah. Story of a hardened criminal, Jean Valjean, given a second chance and ends up living an extraordinary life as a result of redemption. And it's an, it's an epic musical and an epic book, 1,500 pages. But one of my favorite characters in the, in, in the story is a character who uh, is on stage for about three minutes. I timed it uh, in the musical. And that's the bishop, uh, Father Muriel, or as he's known, Father Bienvenu, Father Welcome. And it's his early single act of hospitality. 
of welcoming this man that no one else would welcome because of the mark of sin that he bore, being a criminal, his yellow ticket. That simple act then became redemptive. Even, even after this man threw the grace that he received back in his face by robbing him of the, the table settings, the silver, the candlesticks, and then was rounded up by the police and forced to confront the man he had victimized, and the man gave him grace and pardon, and he covered over the sins of Jean Valjean, acting as a mediator of Christ's love, and then gave him God's word and said, you are a new man. And then that life became extraordinary as Jean Valjean, of course, throughout the story, becomes the kind of welcoming, hospitable Christ follower that the bishop had been. And that story, in in so many ways, uh, is, is an emblem of this passage before us. Small acts in our lives. Our lives that are only a small span of time. We're on stage of this life for a brief moment can have amazing impact when we do it in the strength that God provides and to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. So, I want us to look at this passage, first of all, through the lens of, of three big ideas. Why, why these admonitions? We, we, we have this great passage of just exhortations. And I, I have to confess, when I first read them, they seemed like kind of a random barrage. Like Peter's acting like he's gonna finish the book. He, he, he ends with an amen, but it was kind of like, oh, and then some other things. And he's just kind of scatterbrained. Uh, and I'm realizing, no, 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 it, not really. Um, wh- what are the things that tie these all, all together? And so, so three things that, that, that tie this passage together, this little section, as to its purpose. First of all, wh- why are these exhortations here in this context in particular? What's their relation to the other verses that came before? Peter is contrasting the life of the Christ follower with the life that is centered on self and sensuality. Uh, Last week, if you were here, Jackson preached uh, through the first 10 uh, verses of chapter four, and it talks about in verse three, you know, this is what the Gentiles want to do, and you've had enough of that life of sin and debauchery. And so Peter is now moving on to, all right, this is what you used to be, but now as a Christ follower, what should characterize your life? Rather than drunkenness and orgies, what should we practice if we are following Christ? Uh, The second thing we should keep in mind is that Peter is giving the church instructions so that they can create opportunities to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed. This is very strategic, okay? How do we create opportunities in our midst and in the world to proclaim the gospel in word and deed? And third, the ultimate purpose is, of course, to glorify God by showing and telling what Christ did for us and to exalt his power and dominion in a world that is perhaps hostile to that dominion, a world that shakes its fist or even mocks and ridicules the idea that God is in control of anything. 
So let's walk through this passage. It's a wonderfully simple passage. And I wanna mostly just get out of the way and let God's word speak to us this morning and, and give room for the Holy Spirit to work on all of our hearts. And think about some of the ways, consider the ways we can continue to follow these exhortations. Starting in, in verse seven, Peter sort of concludes this, this, this passage that he had started uh, over a chapter ago, giving instructions about submitting and uh, to governing authorities and honoring people and serving and, and all of those things. He says, in, at the end of all things is at hand. See, Peter believed that the return of his Lord Jesus was imminent that it could be at any moment. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. There's a sense in which redemptive history was finally satisfied in the work that Christ performed in offering himself as a sacrifice for sin, suffering for us, and then rising from the dead and going to be with the Father. And Peter is waiting, and he's telling the church, it could come at any moment. In fact, we know this because in his second epistle, Second Peter, and we'll be preaching through that in the fall, at the very end of that book, a uh, large part of, uh, for the majority of chapter three, Peter is, is, is almost saying, hey, I, I, know, I know I said Jesus is coming back soon, and, and really, um, he's not slow concerning his you know, promises as some account slowness to be. Right? There are people who are mocking this idea that Jesus was coming back. Where is he? Where is he? And he's, in, he's writing his second letter in part to encourage believers, look, it's God's patience. It's God's patience to delay the return of Christ. Why? So that no one would perish. And so that the full measure of people could come in and receive the gift of salvation. But, nevertheless, he says it will come like a thief. So be ready. And so in light of this, we are to be sober-minded. We are to be self-controlled. There is nothing like an immediate (laughs) looming possibility to help us focus our attention on what's really important. We need to be sober-minded, as Peter said, preparing our minds for action in chapter one, verse 13. Set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the end of the book, in in chapter five, verse eight, he says, be sober-minded because the devil is prowling like a lion looking for someone to devour. And this is connected to our life of prayer, we can, I don't know if you're, you're like me, I can often gauge how I'm doing spiritually by my prayers. How am I doing spiritually? What am I praying for? How am I praying? What am I asking for? Wayne Grudem uh, connects these two ideas really well. He says, we ought to pray in a manner that is intelligent, that is clear-minded, that is serious, rather than one that is ignorant, muddled, or frivolous. We need to have a seriousness about following in Christ's footsteps. And so that brings us to verse eight, which is uh, the the, the kind of boots on the ground practical uh, exhortation here. Verse eight, above all, how are we to carry this out? Where are our marching orders? 
Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Perhaps echoing uh, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. We need, to, we need to love people earnestly, in earnest. That means genuinely, seriously. We need to love people enough to forgive them and extend to them the grace that we have received. It's so easy to nitpick. It's so easy to criticize. And, and sometimes we do need to confront. Okay, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But, but often, uh, our love and our forgiveness and our forbearance with one another will communicate grace and help people grow. Now, how do we show this love in very concrete, tangible ways? And Peter moves right into it in verse nine. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. One theologian uh, defines hospitality this way. And I know that uh, when we say that word hospitality, we often think of a home, okay? Welcoming people into your home and that's definitely part of it, okay? And that's, that's what it would have been in the, in, in the early church, um, missionaries coming through. The gospel was, th- was spread largely through the hospitality of believers who welcomed uh, missionaries and evangelists into their homes, allowing them to stay, meeting their needs so that they could do this. Uh, but Cornelius Planiga offers a definition of hospitality that, inco- that includes this, but I think is also more expansive and has something to say for all of us. He says, hospitality means to make room for others and then help them flourish in the room that you have made. Hospitality means to make room for others and then help them flourish in the room that you have made. And Planiga says that this is actually a feature of the triune life of God, the three persons of the Trinity welcoming one another, making space for one another, the the Son submitting to the Father's will. And it overflows then in everything that God does, and it should overflow in our lives. As I was thinking about this passage and meditating on this idea of hospitality, it suddenly struck me how much hospitality there is throughout the Bible, starting in the Old Testament. The very act of creation itself and putting man in this garden environment was an act of hospitality, space created, and then helping them to flourish. Of course, that went wrong. But other examples, uh, God leading Abraham and later Israel into the promised land. In the New Testament, we have Jesus feeding the multitudes, providing a meal to nourish them so that they would not faint along the way home and so that they could receive his words with attentiveness. We have the prodigal son a recipient of hospitality within his own family from whom he was alienated. He was a rebel. In the upper room discourse, Jesus telling his disciples, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. A place to be welcomed. 
the thief on the cross promised by Christ, today you will be with me in paradise. Our Bible study has been going through Luke and, and, and even Zacchaeus, uh, right, the old song, almost an example of reverse hospitality. Jesus saying to him, I must go to your house today, which was unheard of because he was a tax collector and sinner. And he, he would have assumed that, that Jesus would have scorned his invitation. And then someday, the new Jerusalem, new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 through 22, the city of God that welcomes those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. See, when we make room for others in order to help them flourish, we become mediators of Christ's love. Hospitality reflects the essence of earnest love, and that's why it comes after love one another earnestly, because it requires sacrifice. It requires, requires seriousness. It gives us also the opportunity to speak God's words to those whom we welcome in his name. Now, of course, Peter then has to throw in that rider, right, without grumbling. How many of us have grumbled at, at doing something we knew we should? Doing something we knew was important and valuable and loving and merciful and kind, but in our hearts, if we were honest, we we're kind of, kind of grumbling about having to do it. It was inconvenient. We didn't have the time. It's expensive. We hadn't anticipated this. You know, the, all of those things, right? When, when Clark Griswold's weird cousin comes to town for Christmas vacation in the Winnebago, right? But without grumbling, okay? You see, hospitality starts with an attitude. It really requires a proper attitude. And that attitude requires generosity, which is the opposite of greed, of caring so much whether or not I'm going to have enough. Rather, generosity is making sure other people have enough. Generosity of our time, our space, our homes, our food, our resources, our possessions. It starts with this recognition that everything we have is on loan from God himself. And how will we invest it? How will we spend the talents that God has given it? Are we going to bury it in the dirt? Are we going to be hoarders of grace? As one of our elders uh, mentioned uh, after first service, it's like the manna from heaven that God lavished on Israel and when they hoarded it, it became worm-ridden and unusable. So we can easily practice hospitality with the wrong attitude. Three, three wrong attitudes we might have in practicing hospitality. The first is simply uh, that we do it out of duty, right? We just do our duty for duty's sake. It's the right thing to do, okay? Maybe you were raised in that kind of home where you just, you know, you just hunker down and, and soldier on, okay? And this is better, I think, than not doing it at all. Don't get me wrong. We might be on a continuum of sanctification in this, right? But it's certainly 
not where our hearts need to be. Because what would it communicate to, to a person if you welcome them and uh, they thank you and you say, well, you know, I'm just doing what God told me to do. That doesn't communicate earnest love. No, God loves a cheerful giver. And the only way we can be cheerful givers is if we really understand the grace that we have received. Second reason we can't, we, we, the second wrong attitude we should have is, is that we practice hospitality out of, out of a quest for uh, social acceptance. And, 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 and having all of our social connections balanced properly. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Here you've got Jesus in the home of a scribe. He has been uh, the recipient of hospitality and he starts going off about hospitality. You're always taking a risk with Jesus, asking Jesus into your, into your home, to your party and that kind of a thing and, and, and Jesus just puts one right between their eyes. He says to the man who has invited him, when you have a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, we might then need to uh, think about going too far the other way, and that's the third attitude we should avoid, a sense of superiority when we practice hospitality, right? We don't want to communicate, oh, well, uh, hey, let's, let's go to lunch because you are lesser than I. Right? See, the point of, of, of what Jesus was saying to the scribes and teachers of the law was that we forget how spiritually poor, blind, and crippled we were in sin when Christ welcomed us. And Jesus then asks us to show hospitality without expectation of repayment because that's a picture of his grace to us. There is no way we can repay the grace, the welcome that we received in Christ through his blood, through his righteousness that's been given to us. There is no way we can repay it. And our lives then ought to echo that to others. And, and the gifts that we have been given are so diverse Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love the varied grace. It is so multifaceted. There are so many things that we have been given, and they might not even be things we, we think we, that, that is a thing, right? But God can use it. God can use it if you will humbly Submit it to him and, and, and offer it, right? Like the little boy with loaves and fishes. Well, here's my lunch. God can multiply it. Whatever your station in life, God's gifted you so that you can serve others and help them flourish. And why do we do this? 
just to make feel, people feel good and welcome, that's important. But again, here's the weirdness factor of the Christian religion, right? Uh, as Fred preached on a few weeks ago, we, we, everybody in the room can agree about, oh yeah, we ought to love people and make them feel good and, and all of that. Why? The Christian answer goes further. is because really we want people to bow their knees to Jesus Christ. And the only way that can happen is if they hear God's word. And so hospitality, earnest love, is designed to create space so that we can have those God conversations. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Notice the God thread that runs through that last part. It's the strength that God supplies. It is the words of God. When we speak, when we open our mouths, are we so saturated with God's words and God's thoughts that it just flows out of us and not in a, you know, in a cheap sort of a way. Okay? Kenny, Kenny Clark calls it Jesus juking. Okay? Um, but in a way that is sincere and, and, and genuine and, and authentic. And that, might, and that might take a lot of growth. I, I'm, I'm still growing in that area. I'm thinking and praying about how, how, how can I use my words in these various situations. Now let me say this though. Th- this verse is not a license to just say whatever you want to a person and tell them that it's from God. Okay? Maybe you've been abused by that at some point um, uh, by, a, by an, another believer and, and uh and if that's happened, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and, I, and I hope I would n- n- never do that, and, and we can't do that to one another. When we say something like, I have a word from God, we better be sure. And it better check out with something that God has revealed in his word. Okay? Now, this is to say, we, we should confront, and we should give people God's words and say, no, no, God, God says it right here. Um, and, and I think you need to maybe hear this and absorb this. I, I'm seeing something. We can do it with gentleness, right? So, we should guard our speech with the sobriety, self-control, and prayer that would characterize an ambassador of Christ. And we can't miss that phrase, then, through Jesus Christ. It's also that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. And why? When we take time to think about Jesus and who he is and what he's done, we realize that while this passage is very much about us and about what we're supposed to do, it also reminds us and proclaims to others what Christ has already done because it's all about him. It's all about becoming connected with Jesus and with God the Father. You see, it was Christ before us who was self-controlled, sober-minded, and devoted to prayer when he was here on earth. It was Christ before us who loved so earnestly, covering a multitude of sins by his death on the cross. It was Christ before us who was supremely hospitable without grumbling. It was Christ before us who, full of grace and truth, stewarded God's 
various gifts and served others, speaking the very oracles of his Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the strength that God provided so that the Father would be glorified in him. In all of these things, Christ is before us and we must follow in his steps. Our entire way of life should point to this glory and dominion that Christ has and which will be revealed on the last day when he returns. I love this church. I love you all. And I just want to take a time and, and commend the so many ways that I see these exhortations being lived out day in and day out, week in and week out, not just here on campus, but in your homes, in your lives, in your jobs, in communities, neighborhoods, and even to the ends of the earth. And I know when you list things, you always risk leaving people out, so I apologize, but, but, but this is really a nourishing thing to, th- to think about. And, and, and as we consider, how might we excel even more? And if you're new to us, if you're just getting to know us uh, here at Grace and you want to get plugged in, maybe think of things that, uh, that, that you could be involved in, whether at church or, or just even out in the community with fellow believers. I love the hospitality and the earnest love I see in Grace groups, in homes, welcoming each other with food, prayer, lifting one another up, going through the hard things in life, food bank, feeding people in the community, and also preaching the gospel to them. The tireless, behind-the-scenes, sneaky work of our deacons and our trustees, serving in thankless ways, keeping the lights on and, and, and the toilet scrubbed and things like that. College students who are able to, in the, in the strength that God provides, look up from the mountains of books and tests that they're staring down and engaging with each other, encouraging one another in the faith, in getting involved in the life of the church, serving as they have the energy and ability, reaching out to communities and going abroad. Core group leaders who extend themselves to our youth outside these walls, welcoming them them into their own homes, spending time, precious free time with our kids, with our young people in order to mentor and disciple them. Our Sunday school teachers who create these welcoming spaces to our little ones and teach them the gospel and teach them God's word. Many of you have welcomed foster kids and orphans into your own homes. And moms and dads teaching children how to welcome others, how to become interdependent with the body of Christ rather than just independent, I'm after the American dream. Pouring themselves into the life of their children, serving them tirelessly. Cultivating relationships with coworkers. Getting outside the cubicle mindset, right? heard from so many of you who, who are engaging with people at work in order to talk to them about Christ and share the gospel and pray for them 
Tim Keller in his book Ministers, Ministries of Mercy uh, gives us some other practical ways that this can happen, just some ideas. He says you can develop relationships from, through little loving deeds that might help open people's hearts to let you know of more extensive and deeper needs. Can you find some natural way to give gifts? Buy too many gardening plants or too many tickets to the ball game. Make too much bread. Plant too many tomatoes. And then take the extras to your neighbors, to the folks at work, to the people in church with whom you are cultivating deeper relationship. And all of this needs to be done in the spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit, as it said in verse six last week, that we might live in the spirit the way God does. If we are doing this, it needs to be in the power of the Holy Spirit and not our own strength and energy, lest we should start bragging about it. I started this uh, thought with an extraordinary uh, example, this bishop, right, larger than life. He appears briefly. But you know, we appear briefly. And yet, even small, consistent acts of hospitality can be the thing that God uses to bring people closer to him, to encourage fellow believers and to spread the gospel. For every name that we name today, God help us live this. Regular people whose time on earth is short, being transformed daily into the image of Christ in earnest love, joyful hospitality, and energetic service, God-filled conversations, we can leave a deep impact for Christ wherever we are. So I wanna end our time with just some questions for application and meditation, and I wanna give you time to maybe Write some things down as, as, as the Lord is working on your heart, some things that might occur to you, some, some ways that, that you could respond to these exhortations. The first question I would ask anybody here is, have I accepted God's gracious hospitality to me through his son? I don't wanna take it for granted that everyone here is a believer. You might be here visiting and you've heard about Christ and you've heard about the gospel. You're really not sure if you're on good terms with God or maybe you assume you're, that all people are God's children and he'll just welcome you. And I'm here to tell you that the only way God will welcome you is through his son. He who has the son has life. He who has not the son has not life. There is no one who comes to the Father but through me, said Jesus But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has prepared that place for you already. He's created the space. And you will flourish. And you will flourish like you were meant to flourish. And he will wash away your sin, everything you've done wrong, everything you ever will do wrong. And he will give you his positive righteousness. He will give you his life in exchange for your old sinful life so that you can be welcomed into eternal dwellings where he and his father will be for eternity and you will be welcomed into a family. If you have not received this invitation yet, I pray that today would be the day and I would love to talk to you after service if if you would like to talk to someone about how to take that 
step of faith. Number two, what places in my life do I need more seriousness, sobriety, or self-control? Maybe God has already been speaking to you in this. Write down those areas. What are those areas where you realize, wow, I, I do need to get serious. I've, I've been meaning to get more serious about my prayer life or about really being nourished in God's word. I had a great word from a, from a friend this week. Just a great question. Are you being nourished in God's word this week? And I realized, wow, I've been instructed by God's word, but nourished is an interesting word. And am I really being strengthened by it? Do I, do I turn to it as I would turn to food, as sustenance? Am I really serious? Maybe you're struggling with temptations, addictions. The Lord knows what they are. Do I cheerfully create spaces for others to feel welcome and nourished for the sake of the gospel? Many of you are, are, are doing this so well and, and we lead busy lives. And for some of you, you just need to be encouraged. Keep doing what you're doing. And be encouraged to do it with joy, knowing that it is a high calling, it is a precious thing to God. But are there spaces where you haven't given that over, where you you could have a more hospitable attitude? I know I could. Places where I want to put up fences, I want to put up hedges, I want to put up barriers where if I think about it, you know, that, that comes from a lack of faith and lack of trust, and that comes from fear, fear of man, fear of not getting what I want, fear of not having enough, let the Lord speak to you. Might be just the way you interact with people here at church, you know, do you, do you fellowship? You know, it might be out in, in your jobs. It might be in your neighborhood. It might be in your own family. Think about that. Do my words to others reflect God's word? When I speak, am I speaking the way God would and or Jesus would speak in my shoes. I, I, I saw a frightening bit of technology that's being developed. It's this little wrist uh, thing. It's not a, it's not a Fitbit. It's, it's worse than that. Um, it's, uh, you know, that thing could make you exercise. Um, th- uh, this, this thing uh, digitally rec- will digitally record every conversation you have during your day. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I'm a little frightened by that. <laughs> I'm not like, ooh, yippee. <laughs> this will be perfect. No. <laughs> but if somebody were to download that script and analyze it, would they come to the conclusion that you know God and that you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ? What, what conclusions would they draw of you and me if, if they were to analyze, right? And finally, do I pray for God's strength to serve others with my gifts so that he will be glorified and not me? When I pray, am I praying for God's strength so that I can serve? Do I turn outward? And am I, 
Am I wanting to do this for the right reasons? It's so easy, I think, and this is where I think Satan prowls because Satan knows, he knows all about falling to pride, doesn't he? And it's so easy to fall to pride, to serve in a way that brings glory and honor to me so that others will think well of me. But are we, are we praying for opportunities? Even, even maybe pray for opportunities behind the scenes that aren't so visible, but that have um, incredible reverberations in Christ's kingdom. So let's pray, and I wanna lead you into prayer just to meditate on these things and maybe write down some things that God is leading you to. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ex- exhortations. I pray that you would work on our hearts even now And help us this week to think of things that you might be leading us to so that we will become more and more like Jesus. His name, amen.